0: Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. Thucydides, an Athenian, wrote the history of the war between the Peloponnesians and the Athenians, beginning at the moment that it broke out and believing that it would be a great war and more worthy of relation than any that had preceded it. This belief was not without its grounds. So begins one of the earliest and greatest works of history, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Written in the 5th century BC, it recounts the events of a major conflict in which its author took part. Like his predecessor, Herodotus, Thucydides has come to be seen as one of the founders of the Western tradition of history writing. His rigorous approach to evidence and attempt to provide an objective view of events provided a model for later historians which was influential many centuries after his death. With me to discuss the life and work of Thucydides are Paul Cartlidge, (coughs) Emeritus Professor of Greek Culture and A.G. Leventis Senior Research Fellow at Clare College, Cambridge, Catherine Harlow, Associate Professor in Classics and Intellectual History at the University of Reading and Neville Morley, Professor of Ancient History at the University of Bristol. Paul Cartledge, we don't know precisely when Thucydides was born but sometime around 460 BC in Athens. Before we get to him, can you tell us
1: something of the Greek world into which he was born? Let me begin by saying that Greece is a word we have inherited from the Romans. The Greeks called themselves Hellenes, and they lived in Hellas, which was a much bigger entity than the modern state of Greece. It extended all over the Mediterranean, all round the Black Sea. And Thucydides was a kind of world war historian. He's following, as you rightly said in your introduction, Herodotus, and we'll be coming back to the relationship between those two, I'm sure, several times. But whereas Herodotus took uh, a foreign subject, as it were, his main uh, subject was the rise of the Persian Empire and the impact that had on the Greek world, Thucydides comes after the Greco-Persian Wars, which were a success... And he deals with a period of, well, you could call it tragedy, you could certainly call it um, disasters, within which Greeks fight Greeks, and a outrance, they fight uh, to the death. Huge, uh, Thucydides thought unprecedented numbers of deaths, of appalling atrocities, everything going uh, to hell in a handcart. Thucydides himself was a participant. We'll be coming back to his life, of course. But the key thing is that he excluded very um, deliberately what Herodotus had talked about mainly, which was the Persian Empire. So though we're in the Greek world, this is an intra-Greek conflict, actually the Persian Empire still existed, And it was on the fringes, stretching way off to what's today roughly Pakistan in the east, Afghanistan in the near northeast. And yet Thucydides decides to focus intently on the Greek world. We're in the 5th century BC, that's between 500 and 400. Thucydides, as you say, is born roughly in the middle of that. He says at the very beginning of his work, I was of an age to understand when the war broke out. Can you
0: give us a parabola of that 27 year as it were with a conflict
1: (laughs) I can certainly try (laughs) and um, we speak of it as a war Thucydides is the inventor of that one war theory and it's one of the very key dimensions in the way in which he was a revisionist historian, he's not going to take on trust what anybody thinks you or I looking at the 5th century might well say well there was a 10 year war 431 to 421. Then there was a peace, okay, a phony peace, because they actually fought um, between the Athenians and their allies, the Spartans and their allies. Then the war began again, and you could almost see it as three very separate phases. Why did Thucydides want one 27-year war? Well, one reason was because he was very competitive. His war was going to be almost three times as long as the longest war that any Greeks hitherto knew about, namely the Trojan War. So Homer, ten years? Come on. Minus 27. So it starts 431, and the first ten years is a kind of stalemate. They make a peace, and both sides have to make concessions. But because there are areas of dispute, the uh, struggle resumes, and it starts again in 413 and carries on until 404, with total victory for the Spartans and their now Persian allies. I mean, this is something which had Thucydides lived longer... He lived until the end of the war. We know that because he refers to it. He doesn't manage to complete his account of the war. He presumably dies. But had he lived longer, he might well have done more to incorporate the Persians into the picture. But as it is, the Spartans win, and they then take over the position of the Athenians. They are now the great Greek power in the um, eastern end of the uh, Mediterranean world. Thank you. Catherine Haller. how much
0: is known about Euclidean's life?
2: Um, well, actually, we know relatively little about his life apart from what he himself tells us in his text, and, and that's fairly little. Um, there are a couple of ancient biographies of Thucydides that have come down to us uh, with his manuscripts, but a lot of the information in ancient biographies tends to be viewed as quite quite untrustworthy. It can be speculative, it can be extrapolated from what's in the text. Um, as you said, we think he was born in the 460s BC, Um This is um, a judgment that we make because he uh, held the generalship at Athens, uh, an important military office in 424 BC, and he had to be at least 30 years old. He also tells us, as Paul mentioned, that as the war broke out, he was already of an age to have understanding of the significance of the events. So we assume he was already a relatively mature man in 431.
0: While all this is going on, we're still in one of the centuries of unparalleled genius, aren't we? Mm.
2: Yes, well, and uh, a lot
0: of these people that we're talking. I mean, I'm trying to mm. put suicidities in that context. I mean, Mm. a a lot of the people we admire and whose, whose long finger of genius still points to us today, mm-hmm. fought in wars uh, and were part of it. So the war and the, uh, and, the, and the thinking is going on at the same time.
2: Absolutely. Well, the 5th century was really a, a century of a great deal of war, and that's something that we don't always think about when we're thinking about the Greek world. Um, there were Persian wars at the beginning of the century, there were a series of conflicts uh, going on in the mid-century, and then, of course, this big, long period of a, almost a kind of total war, the Peloponnese, war going on at the end. What's
0: interesting about about Thucydides, I suggest you tell him, he's he's part of that intellectual uh, pattern that he not only reports on what he thinks about war he constructs a- a ideas about war which still are pertinent today. I mean they're taught in the most effective um, military uh, academies in the world which are uh, across in America, West Point and so on. So he has that, that zeitgeist, is there with him.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's one of the founding figures of modern international relations theory. He's been taken up um, throughout the modern period as a theorist of the logic of preemption and the logic of war. So when people think about war they tend to also think through Thucydides.
0: Paul pointed out that you said it is one of his (laughs) aims of writing this war well was to write because he wanted to to, to, to put all this down and he saw himself in a position to do it in in his 20 years exile Mm. but also it's competitive to make it longer than the Trojan War. Are there any other reasons that you can bring to bear on why he wanted to do this in the way he did? Massive, uh, so well researched by himself, objectively uh, realised.
2: Well, he does tell us that apart from the... Greatness of the events, their intrinsic historical significance, that he's also interested in exploring the reasons for the war. Um, He wants to write down these events so that no one will be in any doubt about the causes (laughs) of. Um, yes. the fighting between the Spartans and the Athenians, these two great powers. Um, and he makes a very interesting distinction which is relevant to his whole methodology between the causes that are apparent, the kind of pretext people give, the debates and the disputes that lead to the outbreak of fighting in 431, and what he calls the truest cause, the real cause, which is the least evident, the least easy to see. And that, he says, is the growth in power of Athens, Athens' increase in greatness and Spartan and fear of it. Um, so he sees himself as uncovering um, a certain explanation of why this war breaks out that is different from what people have understood. And insofar as the Peloponnesian War is seen as paradigmatic for all wars, Thucydides is telling us something about the reasons why wars happen in general.
0: And that's often why it's brought back again and again. The Soviet Union is Sparta, America is Athens and so on. There. These war more thinking war games have gone on for two and a half well, they're gone she still gone, right. Neville Morley, in Book One of the History, Thucydides outlines his historical method. Could you tell us about that?
3: I think one place to start is actually to carry on from what Catherine's just said about the aims of his work and what he tells us. It is the drive towards understanding what had happened. And that's not as an end in itself. Thucydides says quite expressly his history is going to be useful. It's going to be worth reading because people can learn from it. Because, and he uses a phrase, catatoanthropinon, which is often translated as according to human nature. It's a bit vaguer than that. It's more like sort of because of the human thing. And he says, you know, because of the human thing, events tend to repeat themselves. Things are likely to occur again in more or less the same way. And so it's worth reading his accurate history of the events of the Peloponnesian War because that's what's going to tell us how to understand things in future. And, I mean, that's why he continues to be read, for example, in US military academies. It's this same idea that we don't just learn about the past, we learn about how how history works, how people and states behave.
0: He makes a point of being objective, doesn't he? I mean, you would have mm-hmm. thought that he would totally favour the Athenians, as Catherine pointed out. He, he, sure, But he doesn't. He, 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 has, he sets out to be objective, to, to try to tell. He keeps using the word truth in Greek, of
3: course, but
0: that's what he's trying to do.
3: Absolutely. I and mean, his starting point is
0: that... So the poetic, yep. the mythologi- mythologizing, the propagandising, he tries to get rid of all of that.
3: Yes, or at least to get at what he thinks is the truth behind these stories. And he's quite disparaging about other people's confused idea of the past, that people tend to believe any old story, which possibly he's pointing at Herodotus. He certainly suggests that there is historical truth in Homer, but there's lots of stuff we can't believe. So he tries to strip away the sort of the mythological Fantastical aspects to get at, you know, what was the historical development that really lay behind the myths and legends. And when he looks at contemporary events, he wants to get past the different perspectives that people have to get at sort of his sense of you know, what really happened. And as you say, precisely, to get past the Athenian view or the Spartan view to. This is why it really occurred in the way that it did. Can you give us an idea of the style and structure of the work? The structure, on the face of it, is fairly straightforward. Most of it is a year by year account of events. And and he next ra-
0: spring and next winter, they did this.
3: Yes, he uses that phrase again and again. Yeah. You know, those were the events of the winter, in the following summer, dum de dum. I mean, that actually gets criticised by some ancient critics because it breaks up the action. So he moves from different theatres of war, he moves from what's going on in Athens to what's going on sort of on the other side of the Peloponnese. For an ancient critic, actually, that's a problem because you're not seeing how events follow through as a unity. But, of course, what it does do is convey the complexity of events, that different things are going on in different places and they affect one another. And in other respects, his presentation is more complex than it sometimes appears. There is, in fact, quite a lot of sort of foreshadowing, and you read a passage and suddenly it becomes clear how this relates to something that had happened earlier. He has a couple of sort of longer flashbacks. So he opens his history with an account of events in Greece up until the point where the war broke out, At a few other points in the history, he'll sort of look back over a longer period of time. In terms of style, um, it doesn't generally get uh, judged positively, or at least the adjectives used by critics are things like sort of austere and complex and occasionally convoluted. His language is... He has a preference for very long, complicated sentences. And it's sometimes suggested that this is deliberate, that you have to read Thucydides incredibly carefully and read between the lines and work out which bit of the sentence relates to another bit, and that this is a deliberate attempt to get us to think things through. Yeah, but for this, our purposes,
0: thank goodness I've got the three of you here. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paul Cartledge, can you give us, uh, uh, can, we g- can we sort of zoom in on, just give us some idea from the early years of the war, how he yeah. treats the early years of the war?
1: If I could just, though, pick up on Neville's point about writing, Um, whereas Herodotus, it's thought, actually delivered orally at least some versions of what he eventually wrote, and though um, people probably did in some cases read Herodotus fairly early on, they often would have heard him, Thucydides is almost impossible to hear um, orally, and Thucydides himself says, My work is not a prize composition for competitive performance, but it is done for forever. In other words, you read and you reread, and it's he uses a word he never uses the word historia, which is Herodotus' word. He uses another word for inquiry, he uses another word for composition, and he is very much clearly writing a text for people to reflect upon. So he starts off the war four three. One and, as uh, Neville says, he does it by summers and winters. His summer is a very long summer it includes the spring and part of the autumn, so it's sort of from March until october November and winter is a what he concentrating more? on he 's focusing initially on um, events, actually what clashes the two sides uh, engaged in which put them at um, a level that the world what he's interested in is why does it jack up to such a, a global conflict in, in Greek terms. So it starts out with an incident not affecting directly either Athens or Sparta. It starts in Thebes and it uh, affects an ally of Sparta Thebes and an ally of Athens Patea and thereafter he, he's off and the Spartans invade Attica and this is part of the pattern They are the prime military force, they have a large alliance, they are unbeatable on land, and Pericles is very well aware, Pericles being the leading spokesman of the Athenian, as it were, resistance, and the way the Athenians cast themselves is non-aggressors. The Spartans have broken the peace, they have been in a peace relationship for 14 years, and it is therefore the Athenians' task to resist and not to be beaten and so the war goes on, on and off Spartans invade So eventually. this is a sense,
0: this, yeah. is, this is Thucydides the narrator Absolutely. Uh, the chronicler because that's one aspect, he's a multi-aspect uh, multifaceted faceted historian yes. isn't he, because there's that and there's the concentration on the, uh, on, as it were, case histories yeah. then there's the reflections Quite. but this, he, he just gets it off to this is what is happening well, Broadly speaking,
1: the, in his methodological passage, which Neville dealt with earlier he divides his whole text, which presumably he hadn't yet written. I mean, it's a real puzzle when uh-huh. he wrote his uh, preface, but between a narrative and speeches. And um, what he's interested in is the degree of accuracy that is possible to attain as between the two, and he draws a sharp distinction. Can we talk, Catherine Harlett, uh, about his... Does he look back on others?
0: And Paul has often mentioned Herodotus, so mm. maybe you want to refer to Herodotus. Again, here, but does he look back and say, I am not like this person, or I want to be like that person, and so on?
2: Mm, well, it's an interesting question. Um Thucydides doesn't mention very many of his predecessors by name in his history and we're in a relatively impoverished position because actually the only um, very extensive historical account that survives uh, in prose before Thucydides is that of Herodotus.
0: They're um, quite close, aren't they? We talk, we're not talking about so many centuries before. They're running in the same century, those two.
2: Yeah, Herodotus was an older contemporary of Thucydides mm. and certainly lived into the Peloponnesian War um, and his works were certainly circulating around the Greek world in the 420 in the period that Thucydides is writing about.
3: Um. And there's actually, in one of the lives of Thucydides from antiquity, there's an anecdote that Thucydides heard Herodotus uh, reciting some of his history, which can serve as a sort of, you know, it's the handing on the baton. Thucydides is inspired but goes on to do something else. Mm. But it does also set up the contrast that Paul mentioned, that Thucydides is doing something different. Mm.
2: So there's a sense that Thucydides is in competition with Herodotus, even though he isn't mentioned by name. I mean, perhaps it would be useful just to say a couple of things about Herodotus, um, that he wrote the history of the Persian Wars, um, the Great Wars earlier on in the century, um, and Thucydides picks up his narrative in a sense in Book 1 from where Herodotus leaves off. Um, Herodotus is narrating the rise of a great power, um, the Persian Empire, and Thucydides in a sense is narrating the rise of a great power too in the shape of the Athenian Empire. So although Thucydides and Herodotus are often seen as in competition, um, there are some ways I think in which Thucydides is taking on Herodotus um, and is influenced in a more sort of positive way. There are elements of imitation there as well as rivalry.
0: But are other other, and even deeper differences? Herodotus seems to be uh, willing to and happy to invoke gods, myths, uh, supernatural events, and Thucydides uh, is much, much more careful about that. And if he does, it's rather ironic the way he passes through them. Yeah. He's much more rationalist.
2: I mean, Thucydides' history is sort of marked by its absence of focus on religious explanation. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, even even in terms of the motivation of the various actors... Herodotus is much more expansive in other ways. I mean, his narrative is digressive. He has long discussions of the customs of different barbarian peoples, the Scythians, the Persians, and so on. And he also says, this is a really important difference between them, Herodotus says at one point that although he doesn't see it as his duty to believe the stories, the different stories that people tell about the past, he sees it as his duty to report them. Thucydides doesn't do that. Thucydides tells us how difficult it has been to extract the truth about events from the varying stories of men. Especially the Spartans. Once he's extracted that truth, he doesn't tell us the different versions. He gives us his own unitary, fairly monolithic account.
0: Nevermore. I think I referred to... It doesn't matter whether he did or not. Uh, one of the things he does is concentrate on particular things, sometimes at great length, and gives us a big close-up and a detailed examination. Paul's talked about the flow. The flow stops. It hits a rock, as it were, and the water mm-hmm. goes round the rock in various ways. And one of these is the Sasis of Kokira.
3: I would pronounce it Corsara, but... Kerkaila. Thank you very much.
0: Yep. Well, I'll pronounce it Corsara from now on. <laughs> uh, now, now, what was important enough about that to make him
3: do it in such detail? It's civil war. It's a Greek state falling apart, falling into factions. in Corfu. Yes. Right. Pretty well, all the Greek states had different groups within them. So you'd have a sort of a populist party who would favour a more democratic constitution and would tend to f- be favourable to the Athenians. You'd have as sort of an oligarchic party. And in the course of the war... Thucydides tells us, it becomes more and more common (coughs) that these different cities fall into civil war. Corsaira is the first, and he uses it. You referred to the idea of the case study, and it's precisely that. He goes into detail to show this is what civil war is like. This is what happens.
0: But the fascinating thing is that from that he draws conclusions which still would seem relevant to Machiavelli, to Hobbes and to West Point. So can you tell us
3: what conclusions he draws from that? A whole range of them. I mean, it's really the characterization of civil war, the tendency to extremes, for example, so that... In what? In behavior so that people 's loyalty is to their faction rather than to the community as a whole, or rather than to their families, so he talks about you know brothers fighting brothers, sons fighting fathers, and in language, the way that people think and talk about things, he suggests it changes, so that moderation, which was you know, traditionally the great value on which a community is founded, moderation comes to be called cowardice. Mm recklessness simply comes to be, you know, proper virtuous behaviour. And violence comes to be called bribery. Absolutely. That's fascinating, isn't it? And I mean, as an image of what happens when society falls apart, as you say, this has seemed to, generation after generation, to speak to their times. So, yes, um, Renaissance Italy, the wars of religion in the 16th century, the English Civil War, the French Revolution even sort of conflict today. I mean, it's been referenced in sort of modern discussions of well, even, say, what's been happening in sort of Crimea and the Ukraine, that this is the template for describing how societies are fragile, how they can very easily fall apart. The ties that unite them break under pressure And
0: And he got it then, didn't he? That's astonishing about these Greeks. They get it two and a half thousand years ago. I mean, we're just footnotes, aren't we, Paul?
1: (laughs) Oh, well. uh, You're a a superior footnote. I'm going to pitch in on the question of language in a different sense. Um, What Neville, as we normally do, calls civil war is in Greek, stasis. And this is a cant. It's a standard word today, and it means steady state, no change. Well, in the Greek, uh, it has the exact opposite sense you have a standing apart in opposition, in the most violent opposition. So the Greek word for civil conflict, civil war, is something quite, to our way of thinking, antithetical. However, my main point is that translation, we're talking about Thucydides, we're talking about his history, it's often very difficult to know exactly what register, what nuance, what precise... um, if you like, jargon or technical equivalent to choose for his language. So one must be very careful not to say that we know or we are reading Thucydides. We're reading various versions of Thucydides which we read in our own ways. But a certain obscurity is often very valuable for a long intellectual life. (laughs) Now then, I think this is a very unfair suggestion. um, Now get back to our
0: (laughs) Uh, He he (laughs) has speeches... Um, Let's take Pericles' speeches. We don't want them in detail. There isn't time. But there are speeches there
1: which he declares. As I, Will you tell us about his speeches? Well, as I said, in the methodological section at the beginning, he draws distinctions between the two types of um, writing. One is narrative. One is speeches. Why does he write speeches? Well, partly because Homer wrote speeches, partly because Herodotus has speeches, but partly also because in a basically oral world, actually speeches might make the difference. Where you're going to a public assembly, it is the speech that tells you the fact did as Howell well do yeah.
0: trust his speeches as the speeches ah, that were given by the people? Entirely different
1: of, question. He himself confessed that it was much more difficult to discover what actually had been said and impossible to render what actually was said in the, his work. And, of course, he writes Thucydidean speeches. They're not Pericles' style. That's Thucydides' style. And he writes three speeches for, th- for Pericles, which marks Pericles out as the main man. No other person gets so many speeches. And he writes them in such a way that the the reader is meant to use that as part of the explanation of what's going on. It's drama. This is tragedy, the influence of tragedy. Agone is another force which we haven't yet discussed, which is coming to bear on the writing of uh, history.
3: No, And I think we can distinguish between different speeches in Thucydides. So, for example, Pericles' famous funeral oration. It's reasonable to imagine that Thucydides, certainly he could have been there, he could have heard it, this could be quite close to what was said. On the other hand, there's a very famous passage known as the Melian Dialogue from much later in the history, which claims to be the report of a sort of a secret meeting between some... Athenians who have basically turned up to demand that the Melians surrender or they'll be destroyed, and the representatives of the Melians. And there's no way Thucydides could have been there. It's very, very unlikely that he would have got any sort of record. And on the basis of the way the speech is presented, this is you know, this was not something that actually happened. It's something he has invented.
0: Catherine, I know you want to say something. But can I push it on a little bit? Sure. Uh, uh, a quarter of this work, this uh, a massive work, is taken up with a single episode, and that's the uh, expedition to Sicily. Right. Why did he spend so much time in it, and what did that tell us about the war and about what his deeper thoughts about history uh, were?
2: Well, the expedition to Sicily is introduced, you know, really very suddenly. We're told that suddenly the Athenians were seized with a desire to go. What date is go. This, so everybody knows? Uh, it's in 415 BC that the Sicilian expedition is, is setting off. So in that time of
1: peace, technically, yeah. between the two sides.
2: Um, it...
0: Massive fleet, massive arms, a real a real go at Tyracuse, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, Fucydides says that it is the entire city, in a sense, that sets sail. And so I think one of the major significances of the Sicilian expedition is that this is the moment when Athenian power finally overreaches itself. Um, if we think about the history as a kind of tragic narrative of the rise of Athenian power and its sort of tragic mistake, the Sicilian expedition is the point at which the Athenians go too far. There are debates about whether to go or not, Um, One of the speakers, the general Nicias, suggests first that the Athenians shouldn't go, that it's actually safer to uh, remain at home and to give a sense of their power. The dangers of failing are much, much greater than the dangers of success. Uh, the Athenian Demos doesn't follow uh, Nicias's advice. Um, they um, are swayed by the other side, who suggests that a huge show of force and expansion is precisely the thing to do uh, to keep the allies in line. Um, That is what happens. Uh, A huge Athenian fleet goes. They're defeated in a naval battle in the harbour of Syracuse. This is, in a sense, a retelling of the Battle of Salamis in the Persian Wars, when uh, the Persian fleet is defeated by the mass Greeks. Uh, The Athenian army has to retreat on land um, and are all but wiped out. Um, So it's a terrible disaster for Athens. This doesn't actually mark the end of the Peloponnesian War. (laughs) Um, It comes late in Thucydides' text, but as we know, Thucydides' history is unfinished. Um, So there would have been more, presumably, if he'd finished it. But it's the moment, I think, where the image of Athenian power and invincibility is really shattered. Um, So it's very, very significant in that respect.
1: Paul, do we have any notion of his uh, own political philosophy? We have expressions of views. Um, To me, very significant is when um, Pericles is the prime mover of the way in which the Athenians are going to resist the Spartans, but it all seems to go terribly wrong to begin with. And the plague comes in 430 BC. Many Athenians are dying. Thucydides himself got the plague, wrote a fantastic description of it. We think it's probably a form of typhus. But the Athenians took it out on Pericles and this wasn't the only time in Thucydides' account that he makes it clear he, Thucydides, does not sympathise with the mass reaction to a statesman-like figure such as Pericles and he says they, they deselected him, they fined him this is a democracy, this is a radical democracy even David Cameron might be deselected by Parliament in ancient Athens but then he says, "'As the masses tend to do, they re-elected him next time round.'" Now, that is a contemptuous statement by an intellectual who is not a member of the masses. He's one of the elite. He's very wealthy. He's very well-educated. He's very well-connected. He, I think, had no instinctive sympathy for democracy and he was very pleased that Pericles, though Pericles, in my view at any rate, was a radical ideological democrat, Pericles went along with the democracy, actually fostered the democracy. Thucydides was prepared to tolerate Athens under Pericles. And he put it that way that Pericles was, as it were, the ruler of Athens, which, of course, if you're an Athenian democrat, you rule Athens, not Pericles. Uh, Neville Morley how do you um,
0: assess him we've talked about him as a historian influence he had but before we move on to his influences and what happened what do you what do you think of this version of the we needn't go into this in detail I just like a sort of snap alpha beta gamma view (laughs) of what you think of him as a
3: historian in terms of I suppose his account of the events the difficulty is we have Thucydides we don't have a lot else so if we disbelieve Thucydides an awful lot of the time all we have are our own speculations so there are things we know he leaves out or doesn't talk about. Paul mentioned Persia which most historians would say Thucydides' neglect of Persia until the end suggests actually he just yeah, you know, it's a failure of understanding or he he would have revised the history to give more prominence to Persia had he had the opportunity. He says very little about something called the Megaran Decree, which some historians would argue is actually a much, much more important cause of the war. Uh, and you know, he doesn't talk about everything. The difficulty is if we reject Thucydides, then we end up with an enormous blank for all sorts of things. But at the same time, I think we have to be cautious. He doesn't, as a modern historian would do, show his working. He doesn't tell us most of the time what evidence he's using. So we can't evaluate his account. We just sort of have to take it on trust. Paul, I just
1: pitch in that uh, though he died um, before he could complete his work, he lived to see the end of the war, to see the Spartans win, and when he writes a little obituary notice of Pericles way early on in Book Two, as we call it, he then adds that the explanation of, in his view, of why the Athenians lost the war was that the politicians succeeding Pericles were not. Up to Pericles's mark, and he actually says they contradicted, they controverted exactly all Pericles, and that's why Athens but lost.
0: Pericles had a up we a defensive strategy, and we can then they exactly. switched it to an aggressive well, strategy well, in Sicily. This is
1: how Thucydides represents that strategy when he as it were makes a comment on it yet if you read his narrative actually the Athenians were very aggressive against Megara that um, Neville's mentioned and under Pericles huge fleets went round the Peloponnese in the first years of the war so Thucydides has an interest why does he emphasise we would say exaggerate the defensive notion because he wants the notion of the Spartans as the aggressors to be the key thing that people take away from their reading
2: I suppose this could be one of the ways in which Thucydides turns out not to be quite the objective historian yes. we expect him to be but I, I think it also touches on one of the main political lessons from Thucydides' text which is questions about political leadership and political judgement uh, Thucydides tells us how hard it is to understand the true meaning of events to understand what really happened even when one is looking back at events one has lived through and both he and in fact Pericles say that events tend to falsify the plans of men Thucydides is an elite Athenian, he's very very interested in the importance of intelligent judgement and the importance of strong leaders who can lead the demos, lead the people of Athens in the right ways. Athens, at the beginning of the war and earlier on in the 5th century, had such leaders in the shape of men like Pericles and Themistocles. It's when they lose such leaders that the problems arise.
0: And We've got to move a bit fast now, and <laughs> uh, you'll be accustomed to that part. But uh, we, he, he had influence on some classical writers, Polybius and so on, and then he had influence in Byzantium. Uh, uh, but let's go to uh, Renaissance Europe and figures of yeah. Machiavelli and Guicciardini, well, for instance, and, and is he... That far on, we're talking about almost 2,000 years on that, is he having a direct influence on the way they think?
1: In the 15th century, when printing comes along, when the Renaissance starts to get very interested in Greek writers as opposed to um, Latin writers, Thucydides is right up there, and uh, Machiavelli, though he doesn't actually mention him by name, very often, quite clearly, he's read him, and somebody who does mention him by name is a contemporary uh, from Florence of uh, Machiavelli called Francesco Guicciardini, who wrote a history of Florence and said Thucydides is the master historian. And this tends to be the, as it were, standard view that his Thucydides is the historian's historian. It's only very recently, I mean, late 20th century, that we even question whether he is uh, a historian in in our sense. We're historians. Um, and one of our French colleagues, sadly no longer with us, Nicole Leroux, wrote a, uh, an essay called Tu sais n'est pas un collègue. He's not a colleague. You couldn't imagine him sitting in the next carol in the library doing his research because his mindset is very, very different. He's much more of a maker, much more of an artist than he is, as it were, a craftsman. He's much more out-in-the-field man, isn't they? he? Well, he believed, and this is where Polybius um, takes up, he, you can't do the job unless you've actually inspected the bat- and talk to the people or their descendants who fought the battles. It sort of comes on track for English-speaking
0: people in, uh, let's say, I'm jumped a bit, but 1629, Thomas Hobbes translates it, and Thomas Hobbes himself is a very powerful figure, and this is a powerful translation, and it's in the game in England from then on.
3: Yes, there had been an earlier translation, uh fifteen fifty by Thomas Nichols, but that was a translation from the French translation of the Latin translation. Mm-hmm. And it's not Nichols' French wasn't very good. No, so Hobbes we're talking about. Hobbes goes back to the Greek. Or certainly his big claim is he's gone back to the Greek. He produces I would still say a very good translation. The difficulty for sort of us today Does is Does that you-
0: enter into the political discussion generally? Sorry to hurry you, but yeah. we haven't got that much time.
3: Very much. I mean, Hobbes has this phrase that Thucydides is the most politic historiographer. And Hobbes draws on his ideas in his own political philosophy, particularly in Leviathan. And from then on, Thucydides is part of the canon of political thought. So he's seen quite often not as a historian, but as a political philosopher whose aim had been to study events in order to identify the laws or the principles of human behaviour. And that's been a particularly important tradition in the, from the second half of the 20th century, where he becomes a very prominent figure. Certainly, he's quoted a lot in international relations theory as having identified the basic principles of realism.
0: Can we just concentrate? On that? The, the Germans take him up at the end of the nineteenth century, Ranker and others. But then in the twentieth century, he's still he is still part of the dis- discussion of international relations. Catherine,
2: Haller. that's right. I mean, he, along with Hobbes and Machiavelli, are considered the sort of three canonical founder figures for this discipline. Um, and as never what is s- the
0: discipline? I mean, finding out why things happen in war, study or of the re-
2: relations between yeah. states, rather than the political theory of you know the composition of the state and the makeup of states. So a great deal of international relations is concerned with war, but not only with war, with treaty making, um, with, with various kinds of relations between states. Um, Hobbes, Machiavelli and Fucydides are all seen as examples of uh, this theory of realism, which holds that basically in the international arena, moral considerations, justice and so on, have no purchase. That's in its most extreme form. States tend to follow their own self-interest, the national interest, uh, regioni di stato, and mm. um, and this tends to lead them to seek to increase their power um, as a means towards security. The
0: strong grain power and the weak have to put up with it.
2: Well, that's uh, a quotation from Thucydides, in fact. Yeah. Yes, okay. yes. Okay. So this is one of the phrases right. that comes up. Yeah, you know, it's
0: one in one of your papers. I mean, obviously, I didn't know that until I read your stuff. <laughs> but, sorry, yes. I
3: mean, there's a difficulty in the way that Thucydides is read for this purpose. That's a quotation from the Melian dialogue, it's something the Athenians say. Within the international relations tradition, it is quite often assumed that this is Thucydides' own principle rather than a line he's put into the mouth of some characters.
1: No, that's a very good point. We very rarely can tell that something is Thucydidean as opposed to um, the ideas out there.
0: You said, Paul, we're coming to an end now. You said
1: he, you wouldn't be sitting around
0: this table as a historian as the three of you are. Is that a bit of a pity?
1: A pity that we are well, historians. He no, no,
0: no. Of course not. It's great that you're historians. Uh, but that his way of writing history yeah. is not something that you would take on in the historical uh, monastery no, at the moment. Well, we
1: couldn't write um, speeches and we wouldn't um, write up the way uh, Thucydides writes up. For me, the combination of his predecessor, Herodotus, and Thucydides is the ideal uh, combination. And Cicero famously said that uh, Herodotus was the father of history. And someone once said, yes, okay, if you accept that history is born in the generation of Thucydides. But for me, it's the combination of the two that's winning. Well, thank you very much, Paul Paul Cartlett, uh, Catherine Harlow, Neville Morley.
0: Next week, we'll be talking about Ashoka the Great. Thank you very much for listening.
3: And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests.
0: Sorry it okay. was a bit of a rush at the end.
1: Well, it's always that way.
0: What, what,
3: what did we omit? That, um, that's the question.
0: I mean, it's really worth me
3: putting a bet on it. <laughs> I think there's an awful lot more about the reception side of things, I'm well, partly because I've spent years studying it, but the way that he's seen as the historian's historian, as Paul says, even when the idea of history changes, you know, Thucydides remains this authority figure for people who have quite different ideas of actually what history should be. So some of the time he is the historian as the great creative artist, some of the time he's the historian as sort of scientist, sort of rigorous critical analysis of evidence. Um, and of course for all of these, actually that's a bit of a problem, because if you want to believe in Thucydides as the scientific historian, the speeches are really inconvenient, because he said he made them up, they, you yeah, know, they are too artistic. Can't you just had... fill it those out? You can
0: say, we? "Well, he's a historian." Up to you, come to that bit, and then we'll fill it this out. But we'll go on thinking of a historian in the next bit.
2: I think it's very. Im- I think the speeches are very important because Thucydides is trying to tell us about the reasons that right. people went to war, um, and so we hear the reasoning, the causes of reasoning, and um, the ways in which people argued. And it's also a part of the lesson we learn. A speech is often paired, not always in the case of Pericles, in no, fact, he's no. the exception, but a speech is generally paired with a speech telling the opposing point of view. Or, an opposing. or yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and so the difficulty of determining in debate what is the truth of the matter is one of the lessons we learn from the speeches.
1: But what I've got against these endings is he writes the history of war, diplomacy and politics and even politics he defines in such a narrow way. He never talks about actual constitutional issues such that women are excluded. There are 50 references in the entire work to individual women or collectives of women. In Herodotus there are hundreds. He's not interested much in barbarians and that means especially Persia and so you lose that whole dimension of the Greek world being within a barbarian uh, framework. His own father's name was non-Greek Thracian. He himself is either descended from non-Greeks or there's a very close family connection. This is rigorously excluded. He's very down on Thracians when he does, in an ethnocentric sort of racist way, whereas Herodotus is a man of broad vision who... Tolerates the most extraordinary uh, alien customs simply because that's what those people think are the best way to do things. And who am I to judge whether they are or are not the best for possess- them? Well, it's much more—it's
0: much more twenty-first-century finger Herodotus. You're exactly. Saying. Well, he's a. But a, a, the business of not um, mentioning women, I, and Herodotus mentioned lots of women. That is it—the it, it, historical context in which you find yourself yeah, is that yeah. in which you, to which you react. Uh, the idea of writing about war and saying, oh, yes. and I must write a lot about women is would be anathema would. Well, it, it would does make it odd
1: doesn't it how odd Herodotus is that's the thing, history, his story Thucydides is the progenitor but Herodotus isn't writing history in the same way he's writing about culture isn't he well he's writing cultural history and exactly so, he's the father of cultural history anthropological history if you like yeah. and Thucydides is the father of diplomatic military and political history again yes, Tom, quite narrowly we conceived get some tea. <laughs> well that's a relief and where are the
2: There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4.